Okay, Acts chapter 25. Uh, Paul is in, has been imprisoned. Uh, just to back up a little bit, he went to Jerusalem uh, to preach the gospel, uh, was arrested, uh, and a big riot occurred. Claudius Lysias rescued him from these rioting Jews that wanted to kill him. On two occasions, Paul tried to preach the gospel to them. They rejected it. And as a result of uh, a conspiracy to take Paul's life, uh, Claudius Lysias sent him off to Caesarea uh, to come under the authority of Felix to protect Paul's life. Uh, Felix has already had a trial with uh, the Sanhedrin, with, uh, with the high priest Ananias, and come to the conclusion that Paul is innocent, uh, but, uh, but failed to actually pronounce that innocence and to release Paul, and instead, as a favor to the Jews, kept Paul in prison for an additional two years and still didn't make the decision uh, to let Paul go, but turned that decision over to his successor, who is um, Portius Festus. And that's where we pick up our text uh, this morning in chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. A few days later, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute uh, with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, 
I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Father, we thank you for this chapter that you have ordained should be in your holy scriptures for our teaching, for our instruction, God, for our growth and our maturity and for the advancement of your church. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use it, God, and you would open our hearts and our minds to the preciousness of the gems of truth that are contained in this passage. And we yield ourselves to you, acknowledging, Holy Spirit, that you're the teacher, you're the mentor, you are the one that has come alongside to reveal the Son. And so we ask, would you reveal Christ and the Father to us and the application of these truths to our life today? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I've entitled this message this morning, the buck stops, dot, 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 question mark. You know how that phrase ends, the buck stops here. here. Absolutely. Uh, do you know the, the origin of that phrase really comes from uh, Harry Truman. Uh, Harry Truman, when he came to office in 1945 as president of the United States, loved that statement so much and was so tired of uh, previous administrations that would never really make the final decision or take responsibility for the decisions they made, is he, he commissioned a plaque that, uh, to be made for his desk. And so he had this plaque, it was made of glass and painted and with a wood base, and it said in bold letters, the buck stops here. Now, that phrase didn't actually originate with Truman. It was actually a poker term from the wild frontier days. And how it worked is that, uh, is that as men or women were playing poker, I guess not too many women probably played at that time, but as the men were, were around the table playing poker, the dealer would have a, uh, a knife that was made with a buckhorn handle. And that knife indicated that he was the dealer. And as the dealing would rotate to keep track of who the dealer was, the buck knife would be pushed over to the next person after the deal had been done and after that card hand had been finished. And so the buck was passed to the next person. But you had the option, if you didn't want to be the dealer, uh, because you were concerned about the cards or, or about you know, having a better advantage, uh, you would actually pass the buck to the next dealer. And that's where the for, uh, term actually originated, is passing off responsibility for the, for the responsibility for getting the game started and for taking responsibility for how the card game went. Uh, you would pass it off to someone else. And so when Truman came into office, he, uh, he was familiar with that terminology, and, uh, and he said, the buck stops here. In other words, he's going to make the decisions and was willing to take responsibility for those decisions. It's interesting that uh, he mentioned this quite often, and of course in, in, his, uh, in his speeches and uh, in his uh, encounters in making public addresses, he would often reference this topic of the buck stops here, and he did in his farewell address as well in 1953, and this is what he said. The president, whoever he is, 
in terms of the newly elected president, has to decide. He can't pass the buck to anybody. No one else can do the deciding except for him. That's his job. The buck stops with him. I, I didn't realize until I did this research and found out this information that that's probably where George Bush came up with this statement that I'm the decider. <laughs> it sounds a little awkward until you know a little bit of the history. But he's saying, I'm the guy that's willing to make these difficult decisions. And um, I, I came across a, a, um, a book called Leading the Way by Paul Borthwick because this whole concept of leadership is, is so critical for the church, it's critical for our communities, it's critical for our nation, it's really critical for the world that we have men and women who are willing to take a stand and say, in their lives, in their families, in their businesses, in their community, in their church, the buck stops here. I'm willing to take a stand, I'm willing to take responsibility, and I'm willing to take my lumps or whatever it is for the direction and the decisions that are made. There are not very many people like that in life, but the church should be full of people like that. Let me, uh, let me read a quote to you from Paul Borthwick from Leading the Way. He said, the world needs leaders who cannot be bought, whose word is their promise, who put character above wealth, who are willing to stand alone and make decisions that others don't want to make, who are larger than their vocations, who are willing to risk failure, who will be honest in small things as well as great things, who will make no compromise for wrong, with ambitions whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, and who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it's unpopular, and who can say no with emphasis even when the rest of the world is saying yes. That's a great definition. There aren't very many people like that in the world today. And unfortunately, even in Paul's day, that was true. And as we go through this text this morning, I think the, the primary thing that God has really been pressing on my heart to communicate and to share with you is this whole concept of leadership. Because as we look at these three uh, governmental leaders, governors and kings, they are men of great authority, great power, great influence in the Roman government, and yet in each successive case, they refuse to make the difficult decisions and they pass the buck. And so I hope as we go through this, we're gonna learn some things today. And by the end of it, there'll be uh, an explanation of how as God's chosen people, as the priests of the Most High God, as sons and daughters of God, who are called to be people who make decisions and who stand for truth and do what's right and are a holy influence wherever we go and are fearless that God will show us how to live that kind of a life. So we find that um, in review, the life of Felix uh, passing the buck is that in chapter 24, he listened to all the charges of Ananias and, uh, and the Jews, who was the high priest, and he actually believed in Paul's innocence, remembering that from chapter 23, Claudius Lysias, the commander who rescued Paul, had sent a letter to Felix and saying, this man is innocent. There are no charges against him that are valid. But instead of taking a position on the situation with Paul, Felix declined his rightful, just role of being the decider and instead passed the buck. He hardened his heart, left Paul in prison two years as a favor to the Jews and turned the decision over to a successor, again, as a favor to the Jews. This is really just amounts to cowardly leadership. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about why uh, as, we, as we also look at the life of Festus. But I think when I think of Felix, remembering he was a completely immoral, godless, unethical man in his terms in office, in fact, so, so much so that he was later recalled by Caesar, which prompted this transition from Governor Felix to, uh, to Festus. But I think his motto was, never put off until tomorrow what you can avoid altogether. And I think his second, maybe more contemporized motto would have been, eagles may soar, but weasels don't get sucked into jet engines. <laughs> and so Felix was a weasel, the bottom line. I hate to talk about him like that, but he's, he would qualify as a man that uh, wanted to soar, wanted to be great, wanted to be uh, a man of nobility, but instead stayed close to the ground where he was safe. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that that effort to be safe actually cost him everything. It's a funny thing, isn't it, how you try to take the safe road and in the end, you're, you're burned worse than if you'd been courageous. And that was, the, that was the experience of Felix. And so he passes the buck to Festus. Now, I, I need to give you a little background on these guys. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, about Festus for, for just a few minutes. The, the history uh, through Josephus and other historical writers tells us that he was a prudent and honorable man. He governed fairly well despite all the problems that were left to him by Felix, but he was quite inexperienced. He didn't know very much about Judaism. He was fairly unfamiliar with all of the, the long-standing conflicts between Christianity and uh, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem. He didn't know a lot about Judaism, and he didn't really have a big handle on all the nuances between the debate and the disputes between the Jews and their problem with this resurrected Jesus. Uh, we also know that he had a daunting task ahead of him. Felix had left uh, this area of Caesarea in such political chaos. And remember that we had the Sicarii that were still running loose. These are the, the ancient day terrorists that were called the daggermen because they kept daggers in their clothes, cloaks and they would go around and just assassinate people and no one could figure out who they were and they were very dangerous. They were assassinating Romans, they were assassinating Jews and they were assassinating the leaders of the high priesthood in, 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 in Israel. And so it was a major problem and it was so stressful and so difficult and so challenging for Festus that uh, history tells us that he died in only two years as a fairly young man of natural causes just because of the stress that he was under in trying to deal with this mess that, uh, that Felix had left for him in Caesarea. But as soon as he's appointed to this position, and I'm going to summarize all these things fairly quickly, um, he, he went to... Jerusalem. He was based in Caesarea, but because he was overseeing Judah and the temple, uh, he had to go to Jerusalem because the Jews were his major responsibility to keep the peace with the Jews. So as soon as he was in office, he showed up to Jerusalem to kind of schmooze with all the Jews and to try to introduce himself and to try to begin to build some, uh, some, some cohesion and a bridge between the Roman government, which the Jews despised, and with the Jewish leadership. And it was a necessary alliance for, for Festus if he was going to have any success whatsoever. And the Bible tells us that immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin and Ananias came before him immediately and brought up an issue that was two years old. Remember, Paul had been in prison for two years at this time, but the Jews had not forgotten and they hadn't given up on their plan to kill the apostle Paul. 
And so the persistence of these accusers of Paul uh, caused them to bring their charges against Paul, that he's a troublemaker, that he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect, uh, that he stirs up riots all over the world, and that he tried to desecrate the temple. And so these Jewish leaders, knowing that they didn't have a legitimate judicial case, asked Festus as a personal favor. And and remember, Festus is trying to make friends with these guys. He cannot rule successfully. He cannot fulfill his commission from Caesar without getting along with these high-ranking Jews. And they come to him and say, hey, you know, we need a little favor here. I know you're wanting to get along with us. I know that this is really important to you and it's important to us. And we're not asking a lot, but we want Paul. Uh, so he, they were asking that he be transferred, and, uh, but they knew they didn't have a case against the Apostle Paul. The objective was to transfer him and then to set an ambush and kill him along the way. That was their plan. And by the way, this is about their third attempt on Paul's life in the book of Acts alone. It's interesting because Paul later would write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. It just kind of comes with the territory. And we actually find good uh, history of that in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Uh, the Bible tells us that Joseph, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, uh, Jesus Christ himself, and Stephen, all of these people were persecuted Uh, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all of these Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, they actually suffered, they were falsely accused, and they they were persecuted. And uh, they went through all of these things. But listen to what Psalm 37 says, because sooner or later, if it hasn't happened already, you'll be falsely accused. As I've said before, it doesn't happen very often. Most of the time we're accused for things we actually did. And I certainly have had my share of those things. But every once in a while, we get accused for things that we didn't do, and we're like... You know, we're like completely flabbergasted that somebody, we we actually got caught doing the right thing but accused of doing the wrong thing. And it just is like, it's astonishing to us, you know. Uh, But we forget all the things that we actually got accused for rightly. But those things that we actually got accused for falsely, it's like it's it's just terrifying to us and we're, we're just astonished by it. And yet the Bible says, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, these things will happen. Psalm 37 gives us a promise though. Verse 32. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, and that's what the Jews were doing for Paul, seeking their very lives, but the Lord will not leave them in their power or let them be condemned when brought to trial. What a great verse, isn't that? Just a a tremendous promise to us. God's not going to leave you when you're falsely accused, and he's not going to give you over to your enemies. And so you can be at rest and at peace. You don't have to win. You don't have to prove your case. You don't have to fight tooth and toenail to make sure everybody knows that you're innocent. You can actually entrust yourself to God and wait for his deliverance. There's a a great verse, by the way, as I derail momentarily from the message, from 1 Peter chapter 4.19. It's one of the most helpful verses in the Bible for me. Can't say it's for you, but I can say it's for me. What do you do when you suffer? It says, those who suffer according to God's will should entrust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Just keep doing good. You know, doing good is one of the best answers to false accusation that you can ever come up with. And if you hang on long enough and you're in the right and you're doing good, you will see eventually, and people around you as well, they will see everything kind of filter out and they'll watch the comparison between your life and the life of your accuser. And that in and of itself will speak volumes about your character, and about uh, your righteous standing before God. And so Paul is being accused, again, 
uh, and his life is at stake. But Festus responded very wisely in verse 4, suggesting that they press their charges in Caesarea. He spent about 10 days with them. Festus is great. He's not going to be pushed. He's not going to be hurried. And he's not going to be bullied by Ananias or by the Sanhedrin. And so he just takes his good old sweet time having conversations with them, not getting upset, not getting all riled, not running back to Caesarea and grabbing Paul and bringing him, but simply letting these, these, the Jewish leaders kind of soak for a while and just letting him then know that as this new governor of Caesarea, he is not going to be bullied by the Sanhedrin of Israel. Part of the reason was is that he heard repeated unsubstantiated charges against Paul. And the reason they were unsubstantiated is because they were accusing him of things that were obviously not true. But the reason was is that the accusation they really had against Paul had to do with Jesus Christ. It had to do with the Messiah, with the chosen one of God that God had promised and fulfilled through the Old Testament scriptures and bringing, and who came and who lived and who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Now, Romans don't put people to death for believing those kinds of things. And so they had to come up with other charges but they were unsubstantiated. And in each case, Paul was pronounced innocent by these Roman governors. Paul asserted himself in verse 8 that he'd done nothing wrong. He'd done nothing against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. But Festus, again, wishing to do the Jews a favor, prepared to pass the buck. And you know, this isn't the first time. These Roman governors, even preceding Festus, were famous for passing the buck. Uh, they were fearful for a variety of reasons, but let me give you three examples that preceded this situation where Roman governors and Roman leaders passed the buck. Pilate, that name should be familiar, at the trial of Jesus, wanting to satisfy the crowd, which is the operative sentence of motivation, he released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified, though Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. So he was trying to please people. This is a major problem. It's a major reason why some of us are tempted to pass the buck, is because we don't want to make people upset. We don't want to ruin relationships. We don't want to make people angry. We don't want to have our plan for our life interrupted by some kind of, you know, unimportant or, or secondary event that's going on in our life, and so we want to just kind of pass it off, ignore it, not deal with it, pretend it never happened. And so that's what Pilate did. He wanted to please the people rather than pleasing God. Of course, he had no motivation to please God. He wasn't a follower of God. And then we have Herod. He's the one that persecuted members of the church. He had James put to death with a sword. He arrested Peter and the text says in Acts chapter 12, he did this because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Again, the same thing. People-pleasing is a major problem. Felix, the, the uh, governor preceding Festus, left Paul into prison, in prison for these two years, though he knew he was innocent. Why? Because he wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. People-pleasing. It's a major problem. Why were these Roman men, these Roman leaders, so fearful? You know, when I think about a Roman governor, you have to understand that all of these Roman governors, almost all of them, were raised up through the ranks of the military. They were raised up through battle. They were raised up through victory and defeat. And it was the ones that, that proved to be the, the really rugged, tough, most of the time, 
the really rugged, tough leaders that ended up in these positions of authority. Every once in a while, you had nepotism and somebody would get their brother or their sister assigned to a position and appointed. But most of the time, these leaders were, were military men. And the question is, what would inspire these guys to be afraid of the Jews? Why would they be afraid of what the high priest says? They're ruling over Jerusalem. Well, I'll share just some thoughts with you. They were afraid because, number one, their boss was capricious and unpredictable and you never knew what was going to be coming next. You ever had a boss like that? No. Okay. I've had a boss like that before. Not, not a Christian boss. I've had a boss like that before. And you're on pins and needles. You never know what to do. And you're, you're trying to figure out, should I be bold and make a decision on these things? But then you think to yourself, wait, if I do that, if it's a wrong decision, he's going to completely rip me down. You know, he's going to read me the riot act. And you see it happen because he does it to other people. And you watch this unfold and nobody ever knows what to do. You ever, well, don't, don't raise your hands on this, but some of you were raised in families like that, with a father like that. And, and you just on pins and needles and you, you never know what's coming next. And nobody wants to really call anything. And you certainly aren't going to confront him because you've learned your lesson that the wrath of dad, you know, comes down on the person that even begins to think about questioning that person. This is what the Roman governors were facing with Caesar. He thought he was God. Everyone treated him as a God. And so on a whim, he could just say, you're dead, you're moved, you're demoted, your, your uh, position is raised, and it was up to him. And so all of these Roman governors really lived in fear of Caesar. Their responsibility was not primarily doing what was right, but simply keeping the peace and they had to keep the peace between the Jews and the Gentiles in Judea. Caesarea, that was their responsibility. Felix, Festus, above all else, their commission was to keep the peace in this arena. Their careers were tied to looking good rather than being good or doing good. And they lived under the constant fear of being recalled or worse, executed. There's a great verse in Proverbs 29, 25 I want to share with you that, that really gets to the heart of this matter. Uh, and I want to move away from Festus and Felix and all of these governors and leaders, and I want to move to us because we struggle with these very same issues. The fear of man, the Bible says, proves to be a snare. It's a snare. It's like a trap. When you fear man, when you fear your boss, or when you fear, uh, you know, doing what's right or in your family or in the church or in the community, it will be a snare to you. Failing to do what's right when God tells you what's right will prove to be a snare to you. It may not happen right away. It might take years for the fruit of that decision to actually come to full fruition. But it will come. And the Bible says the fear of man proves to be a snare. Now, uh, they've done a lot of research on fear and there are a few things that people are just, they dread. And one of them is public speaking. In fact, that's the top of the list. Having to do what I'm doing right now is like really on the number one on most everybody's list. The number two thing is confrontation. Death is actually farther down the line. It's confrontation and we hate it, don't we? Don't we hate confrontation? Now, some of you, there are about three of you here, they, you love it and you're confronting everybody all the time. And we know who you are and you know who you are. <laughs> But all the rest of us, we try to avoid it. We don't want to deal with it. By nature, we, we, we have this fear of man in our heart and we want to placate, we want to avoid. It's part of the reason why, why people gossip. When I'm so thankful, I tell you this all the time. Thank you for not being a church like that. 
And, and I'm so grateful that you're not a church that talks about people behind their back in, in ungodly or unseemly ways. It's just so helpful to the unity of the church that we love each other even in private and even when we're away from each other by the respect that we show each other, uh, one another with our words. But when a person has the fear of man in their heart, the only outlet for expressing all this angst is other people. Do you see how that works? If you won't confront it with the person you're dealing with, as the Bible directs us to, Matthew 18, 15, to do it privately and directly, it's going to leak out somewhere else. The fear of man is powerful, and it proves to be a snare, and it will corrupt and ruin and damage so many things surrounding you, not just the instance and the, and the particulars of the problem itself, but there is a ripple effect uh, because of the fear of man. But listen to the second part of that verse. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When we trust in the Lord and we refuse to give way to the fear of man, the Bible says God will keep you safe. Now, he doesn't make that promise if you fear man. If you fear man, God doesn't say he'll keep you safe. He'll let you experience the consequences of your fear. And that's what happened to Felix. We're going to find the same thing happening to Festus. All these guys died or got demoted because of this Apostle Paul and the things that were happening with Christianity. But the Bible says that if you will put your trust in God and do what's right and say the buck stops here, I'm not going to pass this off to someone else. I need to speak to this. God's brought this situation to my attention. I have authority or responsibility or some influence here, and I will step up to the plate, and I will not pass the buck, and I will take care of it in Jesus' name. And the result is, is that God says that he will keep you safe. I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd certainly rather be kept safe in the midst of my own fear than to be trying to keep myself safe and have God say, I'm not with you. I'm not with you in your, in your fear and in your lack of courage. Do you know that God is calling us as men and women to be men and women of courage? The world is full of people who pass the buck. All you have to do is try to go down and get a permit for anything, anywhere, anytime, <laughs> or try to get anything accomplished uh, on this island, and you'll see it right away. Uh, anytime you try to deal with people, it's like, I can't help you, Mr. Holman. You'll have to talk to my manager. Okay, give him to me. I can't help you, Mr. Holman. You'll have to talk to my supervisor. Give him to me. And you have to go through chain of command and chain of command. Nobody seems to want to take any authority or responsibility anymore. And this is where we step in as the church of God. And we say, God has called us to be people of authority. He's called us to stand up, and he's called us on those occasions where something crosses our sphere and influence of responsibility to, to put a big sign up on our desk and in our heart that says the buck stops here. God has made us sufficient to answer these issues and to be fearless in doing so. But Festus wasn't there. Verse 9, he proposed that Paul stand trial in Jerusalem. Why was he doing this? He was trying to wiggle himself into a place of placating Paul and placating the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He figured, hey, Paul, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem, stand trial, satisfying the Jews? And Paul, I will go and I will preside over the case, he thought, satisfying Paul. Two birds with one stone. Unfortunately, it didn't work because Paul rightly refused, saying that he was standing in the right court, he was innocent of the charges, he was willing to die if found guilty, and he refused to be handed over to the Jews. And he appealed to Caesar. Now, I want to make just a quick point about this whole issue of appealing to Caesar. Because the great apostle Paul was putting his trust in God, was he not? 
You see his life and everything that we've looked at so far, and he's just trusting God, trusting God, trusting God, taking enormous risk, living way out on the edge, already made a decision that his life wasn't his own, knew that he was going to suffer, and he kept living way out on the edge. And yet, he's resourcing the judicial process that was available to him as a Roman citizen. Why do I mention that? I mention it because, in fact, this week, I just had someone just a few days ago call me up and say, Bob, Pastor Bob, I'm in a situation. Do I have legal rights? Should I take some sort of legal action in this particular setting and situation? And uh, because the the Bible says, like in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that Christians aren't to sue other Christians. So are there occasions where a Christian is actually can sue someone? And uh, so they were asking those questions. And, and uh, when is it appropriate for a Christian to take some sort of legal action and resource the judicial system that we have in the United States for our protection? And here we have a beautiful example of this blended trust in God and yet seeing, Paul seeing God's provision in the answer, at least in part through the Roman uh, judicial system. And he takes advantage of what's available to him in the system to protect himself, and yet he's still entrusting himself completely to God. Do you see how this works? If you want to look up more on this, uh, actually Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, gives a little explanation from the Apostle Paul, and there's certainly other passages as well, but that's a great little explanation about how God has raised up these judges and these rulers and these kings in order to bring justice, to punish wrongdoers, and to reward those who do good. And so God has given us this legal system, as he did to Paul, to resource. It's not a lack of faith, but it needs to be, those kind of decisions need to be made very, very prayerfully. And I would suggest with good uh, Christian counsel, not just legal counsel. But Paul uh, takes advantage of this and appeals to Caesar. And so Festus ratifies after consulting with his uh, advisors. And he says, can he do this? You know, can Paul, can Paul do this? And they're like, yeah, he can. And he goes, okay, you've appealed to Caesar. So to Caesar, you will go. Now, it just so happens at the same time, in verse 12, we find that King Agrippa II and his sister slash wife, Bernice, were in town. And they came from up north toward Lebanon area to come and visit Festus to congratulate him on his new appointment and to spend some time building uh, some, some uh, alliances with Festus. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, with King Agrippa. Now, I've got to talk to you about these two just for a minute because they're just, I'm telling you, Roman rule was just absolutely chaotic and crazy. It's like a giant soap opera. All of these people are related. Agrippa, uh, the first or the second was actually obviously the son of Herod Agrippa. They were all Edomites. They weren't exactly Jews, but they all subscribed uh, to the Jewish faith. And he became a king in, um, of his arena up in the Lebanon area in 50 AD. And he was very, very familiar with Jewish custom and tradition and the relationship between the Jews and, uh, and the Christians. He was given authority Interestingly, even though the Jews hated it because they considered him like a half-breed and a sellout to the Romans, he was given authority over all of Jerusalem and he was the one that was given authority to actually appoint the high priest in Israel. You can only imagine how, how that angered the Sanhedrin and how that angered Ananias. They didn't even have control over who was appointed. Of course, Ananias got appointed by him, so he didn't have any quibble with that. But it was a, it was a 
major invasion into the authority and the uh, autonomy of the Jewish leaders at that time. He had a frightening, a frightening heritage as it related to Christianity. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, had killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem in his fanatical desire to eliminate any uh, successors to his throne. Uh, we also know that his great-uncle, Herod Antipas, beheaded John the Baptist, and his father, Herod Agrippa, martyred the apostle James. So this also happens to be the brother of Drusilla, who we talked about last week. I don't have time to talk about her again, but just a wicked woman, just a, a, a wicked, evil, ungodly woman, though she was a Jewess. Now, we come to Bernice. This is just amazing. Bernice is King Agrippa's sister, and she's the oldest of all the girls. And Drusilla and Bernice are sisters. I mean, this is just one incestuous family. It's just bizarre. And you can see how uh, uh, part of the reason why Rome fell. <laughs> you know, it was just like a major soap opera that was going on. This also contributed to the fear of the governors because all you had to do was get one person in the family upset and you were gone. It didn't matter what you did or whether it was true or not. They could eliminate you uh, just with, a, with a, a message sent to a, a family member and you were, you were history. But she was the wife of, of Herod Chalcis, her uncle. Uh, but she came to live with her brother after her husband died. And so Bernice came to live with Agrippa II and then became uh, involved with him uh, physically and immorally. And it became widely known that this was an incestuous relationship and it went on and on and on and on. And, she, and, and Bernice was having affairs with, uh, with Titus and all these other people. And it was just a bad scene. So I'm telling you these things simply to tell you we've got two immoral people that are a part of this, this governing authority that now Paul has to stand. This is the third group of completely immoral, unethical, ungodly people that godly Paul has to stand in front of and present his defense. I can only imagine the helplessness that Paul felt had he not put his trust in God. Had he not put his trust in God. Well, Festus fills in the details for Agrippa, and he described this confusing dispute over the points about their religion and a dead man named Jesus. This is how an unbeliever would talk about it. Can you imagine? Yeah, I'm, I'm following a dead man named Jesus. That's my, uh, that's my belief. You know? I mean, you know, we just don't even think in these terms. A dead man named Jesus. This is how somebody who's ignorant of the truth of God would describe our risen Savior. But he in the next sentence, in verse 20, acknowledged, hey, I am ignorant. I, he acknowledged his ignorance about these issues. He really didn't completely understand it. But I want to suggest to you that Felix wasn't ignorant about what to do with Paul. He knew he was innocent. He may have not understood all the nuances of the challenges and disputes between Jew and Christian. However, he knew enough to know that Paul was innocent. What Festus was was cowardly. He passed the buck. And I want to share with you, uh, by way of personal application to our own lives, is that ignorance is never an excuse for not doing the right thing. The Bible says, one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible, 2 Chronicles 20, 12, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So it's okay to not know what to do, but it's not okay to remain ignorant of what to do. We need to look to God for the answer. And friends, this book has the answers for every dilemma you face in life. Every problem you face, every challenge you face, God's word has the answer. And you, if you remain ignorant, it's because of sloth and laziness. Am I being too pointed here? 
God has delivered to us the answers for our problem. And he says, study to show yourself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who accurately handles the word of truth. So it's okay to be ignorant, but it's not okay to remain ignorant. And so God gives us his word so that we can actually be those people that refuse to pass the buck and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you decide this? No, find out what you're doing. Go to the word, get on your knees in prayer, fast, do whatever you have to do until God gives you the answer so that you can take authority over that sphere of responsibility that you have and make a godly decision. But as he described all this uh, to, uh, to Agrippa, Agrippa's interest was piqued and he said, I would really like to hear this man. Why? Well, because he had this historic connection with Christianity, evil as it was. He also had a tremendous interest in everything related to Judaism and he had a fascination, I'm sure, with this person he'd never met, the great apostle Paul. And finally, he's on vacation. It's like free entertainment to watch this, you know, all of this stuff going on. It's not his problem. You know, he's just listening to Festus's problem. So it's like the best place to be. You can just kind of be an observer and watch the chaos happen and not be responsible. And so he wanted to see the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to fast forward through this little, uh, these final verses. In verse 23, King Agrippa and Bernice entered the audience room with all these high-ranking officers. This word in the Greek means a commander of a thousand. So we've got commanders of thousands who are there. And then we've also got the leading men of the city. This may have been dozens, but my guess is it approaches hundreds that are in this in this audience room. This is not a small office. We're talking about a room that could probably handle a few hundred people. And, uh, and so now Paul goes from meeting with Felix to meeting with Festus, and now he's meeting with King Agrippa and Bernice, and he's meeting with possibly hundreds of leaders at the very pivotal point of Rome in the area of Jerusalem's influence. And you remember what the prophecies were? What God said about Paul in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he said, I'm raising you up, Paul, and you are going to be my witness, and you're going to speak to kings, and you're going to speak to Gentiles, and I'm going to be with you, Paul, and I'm sending you to accomplish my work and to be my witness and to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God is being good to his word. And Paul has a growing, growing audience. You know, it's like a, if, it, if it weren't for the stress of going through it, it's like, hey, that's a pretty good crowd. I get to preach the gospel. And they're all leaders. But I want to suggest to you that the apostle Paul was not anxious. I'm not saying he didn't have any kind of butterflies or that he wasn't, you know, crying out to God desperately. I'm sure he was. But at the end of the day, I don't think Paul's objective was saving his skin. I think Paul's objective was preaching the gospel. And he saw it as a tremendous opportunity. Remember, he already has told us in Acts, hey, if I have to go and die, I'm ready to give it all up. If I can just preach the gospel, if I can just get the gospel out. So Paul, long before, had already made the decision that his life was over. And we'll talk about that more in, in our closing comments. And so Paul has this audience full of people who are hearing not simply his defense, but also the gospel of the great King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Well, Festus summarized all these charges against Paul and pronounced Paul's innocence. This is his third proclamation of innocence by, Jew by uh, Roman leaders, by the way. And he asked King Agrippa, would you investigate this? And uh, because I need to take specific charges to Caesar. 
Now, here's the protocol, and here's why this issue of the charges were so important. I know I'm giving you a lot of technical background information on Judaism and Roman judicial law, but these things are important to really understand what's happening uh, and, and its application to our life this morning. According to Roman protocol, when a person appealed to Caesar and they exhausted the lower court appellate decisions that had basically happened so far, they had to send that person to Caesar. It's the equivalent of, of appealing to the Supreme Court after all the 5th District, Ninth District, all these other courts have been exhausted. Then you can appeal as an American citizen to the Supreme Court. And so he was mandated by law to honor Paul's request. But he also had to include a full written report uh, with a court brief about what the case involved, including the charges against the defendant, Festus's summary of the case and Festus's verdict in the case, and thirdly, the nature and reason for the appeal. And then Festus was mandated to send the Apostle Paul under armed protective guard for Paul's protection to make sure that he made it all the way to Rome and to be with Caesar. Now here was Festus's dilemma. And again, he's just trying to pass the buck. So fearful, walking in fear, not leading. This is what he's fearful of. He's, he wants to pass the buck to Caesar. He just wants to get this case off his back. But he realizes, I don't even have justifiable reason to send Paul because I've pronounced him innocent. So how can I send an innocent man to Caesar? Caesar's going to think I'm incompetent and I'm a weasel because I'm afraid of getting sucked into jet engines. <laughs> and so what Festus is trying to figure out is, okay, now I've worked myself into another new dilemma. The first dilemma was the Jews and Paul. Now I, it's, it's Paul and, and Caesar. And this is always what happens when we take the road of fear. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. And now Festus is ensnared again, and he passes this off to Agrippa in hopes that Agrippa can extricate himself from this terrible dilemma. We're going to study this wonderful presentation of the Apostle Paul in chapter 26 of his defense before Agrippa and Bernice and how powerful it is that, uh, that he has this influence and this opportunity to present the gospel. I want to conclude with several uh, suggestions for us this morning. The first is that some of you may never, never have accepted Christ before. I want to share something with you very briefly. God considered the Roman rulers, ungodly and corrupt and moral as they were, so important to him that he orchestrated from before time began the events that Paul found himself in so that these men and women, corrupt and as immoral as they were, might receive salvation and forgiveness of sins. I'm completely blown away by that. When I see the soap opera that Roman leadership was at that time, I'm blown away. These are not the people I would have chosen to say, get them, you know, they're, they're responsive. They're gonna go for it. I would have said there's no, there's no chance. But God said, no, they need to hear too. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is I don't know why you're here if you're, if you're not a believer. Someone invited you or you were curious or um, I'm not sure why. But I can tell you that you didn't come on your own. God brought you here. And he orchestrated this opportunity for you to hear that God, the creator of the universe, loves you. And he has a plan for your life. But your sin will keep you out of eternity and out of relationship with God. And you will find yourself facing the burning lake of fire for all eternity if you don't receive this free and gracious and kind gift that God is giving, he wants to rescue you from your sin. And the Bible says that you can be cleansed of that sin if you simply 
Repent. Repent basically says, hey, take a responsibility. I've sinned. I've done wrong against you, God. Would you please forgive me? And then believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is who he says he was. He's not just a dead man who died 2,000 years ago, but he was the son of God who died and rose on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of God. And he wants your life. He loves your life. He has plans for your life. And if you will put your trust in him, he will keep you safe and he will not only bring you through this life, but he will take you into the life to come and you will receive the reward and the blessing and the approval of God for all eternity. And so God is offering that to you today and you can receive that. For the rest of us, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to have a memorial in your heart that says the buck stops here. I'm not going to be a weasel anymore. I'm not going to be a placator anymore. I'm not going to try to pat things and make things nice and gloss things over anymore. But as God leads me, I will do the right thing. I will say the right thing. I will be the right person by God's power and God's strength. And I want to take just a few minutes with you in closing to explain. Is this my second closing now? Um, Three more to go. Okay. Uh, But I I want to give you just some very basic elements from scripture about why I think Paul was able to be so courageous and the same elements that will make you courageous as well in your life. The world needs your courage. Your family needs your courage. Your church needs your courage. And the kingdom of God needs your courage. And God has made you adequate for these things if you'll simply apply these things that I'm talking about very briefly next. The first thing that's important to be a person, a courageous leader, is base your decisions and your lifestyle on the solid rock of the foundation of the word of God. This is part of the problem the Roman leaders had. They didn't know what rules were going to be changed, who was coming next. Everything would be completely modified with the next ruler. And they didn't know up from down. And everybody was trying to hedge their bets. This is the beauty of this book. This never changes and it never will change. So you can go to this book and you find out the answers and you can be assured that if you put them into practice, you will honor God. I can't promise what the outcome will be, but I can tell you that God will be honored and he will be true to his word to keep you safe. And so a man or woman that wants to be courageous can stand on this book with authority. The second thing is that you need to reckon yourself dead, as Paul did, Galatians 2.20. He also said, I die daily. Why? Well, if you're dead, you have nothing to fear, you have nothing to lose, and you have nothing to prove. And when those three things are happening in your life, you can be absolutely courageous and fearless because there's nothing that can happen to you. You are completely safe because you're already dead. And, and, you know, I want to explain this just for a second. It doesn't mean that your life is over. It doesn't mean that you're, you're sacrificing everything. What God is saying, even as I was sharing a little devotional before with our leadership before church, when God took them into the promised land and these ungodly people were living there, he said, wipe them out. I want complete, I, I want a cleansing of the house. And so God is not ending your life, but he's bringing sin to end in your life. He's saying, I want your life to end and I want my life in you to begin. I want you to enter the promised land of this kingdom without the vestige of everything that drags you down and will pervert your love for me and draw your hearts away. And so Paul says, I've got to die daily. And so if you want to be courageous, I'm telling you, just make that decision. Your life is not your own. The third thing is surrender fully to the will of God. This is a decision that Paul made repeatedly in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, just absolutely saying, my life is not my own. God, it belongs to you. Everything that I have, everything that I am is for your service. It's devoted completely for you. Surrendering your life will give you courage. The fourth thing is expect to suffer. I wish it weren't so. 
But the Bible warns us, Jesus himself in Luke 21 says you're going to be brought before kings and governors and authorities. And he says, don't even worry about what to say. It will be given to you what to say by my spirit. Just be witnesses for me. And so God said over and over, he told the apostle Paul in Acts 9 and Acts 23, you're going to suffer. And so we have that same, that same promise. The Bible says anyone that chooses to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So if we go in with that understanding and it happens, then it's not a surprise. But if we go in thinking being a Christian is going to make us friends with everybody, we're going to be absolutely shocked at the kind of bounce back we get at times. But Paul had already made this decision to understand. Fifthly, hold on tightly to the reality of the sovereignty of God, Romans 8, 28. God is going to work all things together for good. How could Paul possibly know what was coming next? But his audience just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He was moving up the chain, the food chain of Roman authority. He was going to preach the gospel before Caesar himself. I can't imagine what God has planned for you. I can't even fathom it. I don't know what God has planned for our church. All I know is that God is calling us to be faithful today and let the buck stop here and hold on to the sovereignty of God, knowing that even in, in suffering, God is producing good fruit. Six, remember that wherever you go and whatever you go through, it's not in vain. James chapter one, verse three through five. First Peter chapter four. All these things produce character, hope, perseverance, spiritual maturity, so that you can be complete and not lacking anything. So even when we go through terrible things, you just keep advancing as Christians. You can't, it's just like you cannot keep you down. That's what the Christian life is. It's not a, it's not a life without difficulty or challenge, but you just, Satan just hates it because you just keep springing up. But you just can't keep it down. You can't keep that person down because they have their confidence in God and they're bold and they're courageous and the world just marvels because they can't live that kind of a life. I have two more. You're never alone. You're never alone. Even when Paul was in prison, Jesus came to him in chapter 23, and it says the Lord drew near to him in prison. And he said, take courage, Paul. Gave him a little pep talk. You know, the Bible says that when you take a stand and when you live a life that says the buck stops here, I'm not going to spend my life passing off important decisions to other people because I'm afraid. And when we live that kind of a life, God says, I will be with you. Isn't that comforting? And here's the last one, and maybe the best one. If you live this kind of a life, you can look forward to the promised reward that God has promised to those that serve him. It says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, in other words, when the buck stopped here and he didn't collapse, he didn't cave in, he didn't give up, he didn't abdicate his responsibility, he will receive the crown of life that has been promised for those who love him. There is so much to look forward to and we're on the cusp, the very edge of the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, why not live these final years that we've got courageously? Why not step up and say the buck stops here? I will be the decider. That sounds really arrogant, but it, it's, it's in light of God giving you the responsibility and the privilege and the authority. Why not Allow God to fill you with his power by his spirit and say, no longer will I be a weasel or lacking courage or fearful or abdicating my responsibilities or placating or trying to please people. I will please the Lord and I will put my trust in him because the Bible says he will keep me and you safe and he will bring you home. 
This is not a time in our history for weakness. It's a time for strength and courage from the church. It's a time that even our country is looking as we approach a a new election cycle. We are looking for men and women of integrity, men and women of courage, of principle, of morals, and of ethics, men and women who are willing to say the buck stops here, I will make the right decisions, and certainly, hopefully, men and women that are seeking the counsel and the wisdom of God. We may or may not get that, but it should happen in the church. And so I'm challenging you today. As weak as you might feel, and I feel weak so often, I challenge you. God is searching the earth even at this moment, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, and he's searching the earth for those who are totally devoted to him that he might support them. I pray that he just finds a church filled with men and women, every one of us, who qualify because we're willing to serve our king. We're almost home. You don't have to hedge your bets for, for 20 years from now. I can't say that we'll, we won't live that long. I don't know. But what I can say is that if you live courageously, God is going to be honored, and he's the only one that matters in the end. Father, I pray that you'd bless this, uh, this teaching and this time we've had this morning. I thank you for the, this absolutely wonderful congregation of men and women. God, we're so glad to belong to you. And God, I, I just want to ask forgiveness for the time I've been a weasel. I've wanted to stay low to the ground and stay out of the air where I might get knocked out of the air. I might crash. I might burn. And God, I pray that you'd make me a man that's, uh, that's courageous, not for my own agenda, but for the agenda of the gospel, for the agenda of advancing your kingdom, for the agenda of bringing pleasure to your heart. And I pray that you'd fill this church with men and women, all of us like-minded, that have above and beyond everything else in our life, the desire to please our commanding officer. And so we ask God that you would be pleased. And I want to pray for those this morning that that may have never received you before. And I pray that today would be the day and that you would give them the courage uh, to not just walk out of this church, but to come forward, to meet with some of the leaders, to give us an opportunity to pray with them that they might enter into this wonderful, abundant life that you've given us a life of privilege, a life of joy, a life of freedom, a life of a clear conscience, and a life of a promised future and a hope as we wait for you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.